Turn to Revelation 6 if you want to follow along in your Bible. In the sermon series that we're doing in Revelation here, the Apostle John has been given a glorious vision depicting the things that are going on in the invisible realms of glory. Okay, so we see from heaven's perspective the worship of the church, the prayers that come up there, and we see the interactings of, of the Lord, uh, our, our Lord God, God the Father, and also of God the Son and God the Spirit. In chapter 4, John saw a vision of God the Father ruling from heaven and receiving worship from people upon the earth, from his people. In chapter 5, he saw a vision of Jesus Christ at his ascension, coming before the Father. This is when Jesus ascended into heaven. It was shown on the other side with him coming up to that place, coming before the throne of God and and receiving dominion. And you remember how that was shown. He was handed a scroll. And what was in that scroll? It was a scroll that was God's plan for establishing his kingdom and bringing judgment on his enemies, which is part of establishing his kingdom. A scroll that was written fully on both sides. It was full of writing. God's plan is all sorted out. And it was put into the hands of his son as mediator in order that he might execute that plan and carry out that plan. So what did Jesus do when he went up? when he ascended to sit at the right hand? Is he just sitting there with people fanning him or whatever? No, he is the one who is carrying out the redemptive plan that he purchased for his people. And uh, as the Son of God, he has always ruled. But as mediator, that is when he began to rule. As the one who is in our flesh, he ascended up because he wasn't even conceived and born yet until he came into the world and he carried out his work of redemption and then he ascended to the right hand to rule and to carry out the plan of establishing the kingdom of righteousness that he procured by his death. John told us back in the first chapter of Revelation, or I should add, uh, we also saw that no one else could take the scroll or even look into it because no one else had redeemed God's people and could go forth as the one that would execute, carry out that plan of redemption. Okay, John told us back in the first chapter of Revelation what this whole book of Revelation is about. So I want to go back and review that a little bit as we get to chapter 6 to set the context. Revelation 1.1 says the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is this revealing to us? It's revealing to us Jesus Christ in glory, what he's doing up there. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So God showed Jesus what he was going to do, okay, as as the mediator. To show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Okay, so then if you go down in chapter 1 verses to verses 4 through 7, he speaks of his reign that will bring judgment upon Israel. Okay, he says, after what we, after what we learned in chapters 4 and 5 
about him going up and, and, and the father, remember the thing that he was shown primarily, the throne was central to everything. He rules over everything, everything that happens. And then that sovereign plan, that scroll, was put into the hands of the mediator. Okay, so having seen that, we can understand the opening statement here, coming back and looking at it again in Revelation 1.4. I'll read it to you with a few comments. Okay, Revelation 1.4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. The whole book, remember, was originally written to seven churches. Okay, written to them. And though like all scripture, it is for the edification of all of God's people. Okay, like Thessalonians, it was written to one little church, the church at Thessalonica, but it was written to them addressing situations in their church, but for the benefit of all of God's people. So Revelation was written to these seven churches and addresses things that particularly pertain to their situation in history. So what does he say? Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now we have seen this throne that is mentioned with the Holy Spirit sent out in chapter four. Remember the sevenfold spirit that goes into the world. And we have seen how Jesus, our mediator, was given dominion because of his redemptive work and sacrifice, his sacrifice on the cross. He was what? How is he portrayed? The lamb slain. That's why he was able to open the book and have dominion and to rule because he was the lamb slain. And so it says to him who loved us. See, this is talking about the lamb slain and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests. Okay, people that are able to regain the authority, the dominion that we lost by the fall and priests who are able to worship God, something else we lost in the fall. Kings and priests to his God and Father. Okay, he's our mediator. He is the Son of Man. And so he brings us to his Father. It says, to him be glory and dominion or rule forever and ever. Amen. We want him to rule. We want him to reign. Having redeemed us, he, has given all, he was given all authority in heaven and earth. That's what he told his disciples after he... Uh, died and rose again, all authority as mediator, you see, has been given to me in heaven and earth. And then he went up and he took that authority and that scroll to go and execute God's plan. The next verse, Revelation 1-7, speaks of the work began, which we are looking at today. What does it say? What does it, how does it describe the initiation of God's work, of Christ's work as mediator reigning from heaven when he comes to exercise that reign upon the earth. From there, okay, from up there, Revelation 1-7 speaks of that. Behold, he is coming with clouds. Now, if you're familiar with that phrase, it's used a lot in the Bible, and it refers to God coming with divine judgment. He comes in the clouds, meaning that he comes to judge. So Jesus told that those who are delivering him up to be crucified, 
when he was at his trial before the high priest, Jesus told them that they would see him. He called himself the Son of Man. Coming how? In the clouds. Coming in the clouds to judge them. A statement that they immediately took as blasphemy. Because they said, you're making yourself to be God who is coming to judge us in the clouds, which is what God does. And of course, he was God. So, uh, therefore, they said, you've heard him yourself. He's worthy of death. He's not fit to live. And what does it say when he comes in the clouds? What did Jesus say to them? You will see the Son of Man coming to judge. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. I don't think it's talking about that figuratively. It's saying when this judgment comes, you're going to see his judgment. It's not that you see some kind of image in the clouds. It's that you see his divine act of judgment pressing down against those who crucified him. Remember, Revelation has visions. We're not looking at a guy walking around with stars in his hands around candlesticks. The the candlesticks are churches. Churches aren't candlesticks. They're represented in the vision by candlesticks. And so the stars, the messengers of the church, they're, they're, they're not stars. That's just how it's depicted. Things that we can't see. Jesus being near to his churches spiritually, Jesus being near to the ministers of the churches spiritually, are shown by that vision. So likewise, he comes in the clouds, meaning that they're going to see his hand of judgment. They're going to recognize that God is judging them. And what will they do? What, what, what was Israel? There were 12 tribes, right? What will they do? What does it say here? This is Revelation 1-7. And all the tribes of the earth, or the tribes of the land. Okay, many, um, many would recognize that that word earth can also be translated land meaning the land of Israel. The tribes of the land, the 12 tribes of Israel, were mourned because of him. Even so, amen. That's, we told that in the Old Testament too, aren't we? That they will look upon him whom they have pierced. When they crucified him. The ones that pierced him are the ones addressed. So the judgment will bring unspeakable sorrow to those who do not repent, but great blessing to those who do, both Jew and Gentile. Now, Revelation 6, okay, that we come to today is the beginning of Jesus coming in the clouds to judge Israel for rejecting him and his reign. This is shown in the vision by the opening of the first six seals of the the first six of the seven total seals. These seals are precursors to the fall of their nation and their temple, which he will bring about in 70 A.D., by the hand of the Roman beast with which they aligned to oppose him when they had him crucified and with whom they also joined together, not in a very unfriendly alliance, to persecute the saints. Okay, his servants, believers. It's parallel with Matthew 24 that we read earlier. It happened in this generation. Listen as I read it to you. This is Revelation 6, 1 through 17. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. 
and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Let me just pause here for a minute. Don't forget what I keep telling you. These are symbols of things that you can't see. This is a picture of judgment by means of a white horse with a guy on it that has a bow that he's shooting. It's not that one day there's going to be up and that we're going to see this horse and these horses running around somehow. In the, no, no, these are, these are visions shown to, to show us invisible things. Okay, verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil or the wine. And the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who had been who would be killed as they were, was completed. And I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And there we end the reading of God's word. The initiation of God's wrath, of the wrath of the Lamb, as he opens the scroll, reigning at the right hand of God after he ascended to the Father. God be praised for his holy word. Now, brothers and sisters, here we have presented to us through visions how our Lord Jesus began to reign at the right hand of the Father on high. I believe this speaks specifically of his coming in the clouds to judge Israel for, neglect, for rejecting him overthrowing their nation as he said he would do and as he did do in 70 AD. But even if you don't agree that that's what this is talking about, you can still benefit greatly from what is taught here. If it refers to the unfolding of events in later history, then you can learn about how our God deals with things that will occur or that have occurred in uh, later history 
after the fall of Jerusalem. If you think it deals with things that are yet future to us, once again, you can see how our God deals with things, how the Lord Jesus Christ deals with his adversaries. To emphasize, uh, it, it refers to the unfolding events then of, of his dominion. To emphasize, though, that how this pertains to us, I am going to present the main headings of this sermon as a pattern of how our Lord works when he brings the gospel to a people. So what I mean by that, you can take what we see here and the principles of it would apply in general, like say the gospel goes, let's just take a place today where the gospel has gone with great power. And we have many Chinese people here in China. The gospel has broken into that land and there's many people in the underground church that are serving him faithfully and calling upon him and they're being persecuted severely. Our Lord Jesus Christ has sent the gospel. He sent all of those things, that persecution and everything is part of his decree, his plans in his scroll. And as the people suffer and they, they have the, the challenges that are, are brought to them that, that are his people, then the Lord Jesus is going to judge them. He's going to come in the clouds. And when he does, they'll see his judgment as those who have persecuted his saints. And the saints will be brought out of that persecution eventually. And they'll be given dominion over their enemies. And uh, that is the way he usually works in a new land. At first there's persecution. And then later on, they are right. Now, don't say that that's going to happen in every single place where the gospel goes, but it has happened in most places that it's gone. We see it again and again and again, and it is a pattern of how he works. It is certainly, though, what happened in the first century with the unique situation where you had Israel with their overlords, Rome, coming together then to crucify the Lord. They didn't even get along with each other. You had the harlot Jerusalem riding on the beast of Rome, and then they continue to persecute the saints and they turn on each other. And these are the kind of things that we see that are described here before us. So number one, first thing we'll look at, our reigning Lord Jesus brings the gospel and disrupts a nation with the gospel. Those who receive the gospel are persecuted and cry out for vengeance. That's the second thing. The third thing, he shakes the existing order, the government, that opposes the gospel. Now, sometimes he shakes it in different ways. Like with Israel, it was shaken, but they still didn't get to rule. And it was a long time before Rome was brought down, but it was eventually brought down, and then they did rule. The Christians became, they took dominion over the Roman Empire at last. So let's get underway then with the first heading. Okay, so again, our reigning Lord Jesus brings the gospel and disrupts a nation with the gospel. This is what we see in verses 1 through 8. In the first century, Jesus took his place at the Father's right hand. He was given authority to open the seals of the scroll that contains God's plan. And the beginning of the exercise of his authority is pictured in the vision with him sending four horsemen on horses. Understand again, this is showing us things that happen by imagery of these horses. Okay? We, we should not suppose that people of the first century saw these, these horsemen in the sky or something, uh, something that we'll see. Let's consider what is in this vision. First, 
we see our Lord going forth to conquer, depicted by a white horse. Look at verse 2. Hope you're following along. Um, and, I, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now this seems to speak of him sending forth the gospel of the kingdom. When he was going to take his place at his father's right hand, he told his disciples to go and preach what? The gospel to all nations. What was that gospel supposed to do? It was supposed to conquer for Jesus Christ. More specifically, he told them to begin at Jerusalem, then go to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. When Revelation was written, that was already done. Paul said the gospel has gone into all the world when he wrote to the Colossians. We see this pattern in Acts. The gospel moves to the Jew first, then to Samaria, then to the Gentiles and other nations. Notice that this horse and its rider go forth to do something, to conquer, not just to watch, not just to observe. Sometimes horses were sent to do that in the Bible, but this they go to conquer. In, in Psalm 110, it is foretold that Jesus would reign at the right hand of the Father as a conquering king and as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 opens with these words, King David giving this prophecy about Christ. David says, the Lord said to my Lord, okay, so God the Father said to God the Son, my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's what we see Jesus doing in the vision of Revelation in chapter 5. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. That's what we see with the horse going forth, the rod of his strength going forth to conquer the nations. What we're told in Psalm 2 as well. It speaks of him conquering in two ways. Psalm 110. First, he conquers by making his elect willing volunteers in the day of his power. That's what it says. In other words, he converts them by the power of his grace. Psalm 110.3, your people shall be volunteers or willing in the day of your power. Then it speaks of him being a priest forever for them after the order of Melchizedek. Though as a whole, the Jews and their Roman overlords rejected Christ in his gospel, there were Jews who responded. They mourned when they looked upon him whom they had pierced. And that led them to gladness in seeing why he was pierced and trusting in him for salvation. And they rejoiced. We see that at Pentecost. They looked on him whom they had pierced. And then they rejoiced in him as their savior that came to save them from their sins. They mourned and then they rejoiced. I hope that all of you have done that. I hope that you have mourned because you have seen your sin and you have seen that you're not right with God and then that you have repented and you have turned to the Lord for salvation and that you have trusted in Him and looked to Him to be your Savior, the only one who can save you. Because there is another way, that another, the second thing that happens when He rides forth according to Psalm 110 is that he brings them to destruction. Those are the only two options. Either you come to Jesus and you rejoice in him, and repent of your sin and rejoice, or in him as your savior, or you remain unconquered in that way and are conquered by destruction that he brings. Look at 110, Psalm 110, verse 5 and 6. The Lord, he's, this, this is a, um, 
God of heaven, okay, God, God the Father, speaking to God the Son, the Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. That is how Jesus' reign works. He goes out to conquer, either by crushing his adversaries and sending them to the pit, or by breaking them, breaking their hearts, redeeming them, calling them to the hope of the gospel so that they are saved. Volunteers in the day of his power. The gospel depicted by the horseman with his bow and crown on a white horse always conquers in one way or another. Either willingly or unwillingly, they're brought where? All things under the feet of our reigning Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we saw last week, isn't it? That everything would be brought under him. This horse goes out conquering and to conquer. The rider has a crown of gold where a helmet would be expected. If you're going out to war, you don't, really, you don't usually wear a crown of gold like a wreath, a winner's wreath, a wreath of victory. That's what he's wearing here. That's not what you expect. But you see, he already has the victory secure. He's going out to carry out his purposes. No one can touch him. The horseman does not need to be identified this is the gospel doing its work by the authority of Christ. If you want to put a rider on it, put Christ on it. He's the one that's most suited. He's the most suited for all of these horses. But this isn't a picture of a particular individual going out to do a particular task. This is a picture of the gospel as a whole going out. It, his decree, his order going out to do the work of bringing all things under the feet of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll look at the next three horses together. What we see with them is the disruption and turmoil that come when the gospel goes to a nation. The gospel doesn't come somewhere and leave it all quiet and at peace. It brings disruption when it comes with power. Look at this. The second horseman is described in verses 3 and 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see, another horse, fiery red, went out, blood red. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth or the land. Right? The land, God's people in the land, the land of Israel, under Roman rule in this case. That, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Blood red horse, civil war, killing each other. Now, does that happen when the gospel goes somewhere? It sure does. Jesus said that's what happened when he was on the earth. He said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And when my word goes out, there's going to be hostility toward those that receive it. He said, I brought, um, I set a man against his own household. There's civil conflict. Your own neighbors, your own people that you used to walk with. You see, the sword of man's enemies are they of his own household. The gospel divides. But also as a judgment upon Israel, the Lord sent increasing hostility between them and their Roman rulers. So not only is there disruption between the Christians and the Romans and the, um, the, the Jews, but there's also disruption between the Roman rulers and the Jews that they ruled. There was always an unsettled uneasiness there, but it rises to a new level because 
Christ is judging them. So there's a hostility that begins to arise there. Rome itself entered into this time as well with all kinds of conflict within themselves. I don't know if you know this. I didn't know this until I was studying these things. But the the Roman Empire, it looked like it was teetering on collapse around 68 AD. It was like it had almost died. People were lamenting it. And uh, they were because there was civil war going on. There were factions at that time. Now, they, they, they were healed, but there was this great disruption that went on around uh, AD 68. We'll look, at more, we'll look more at that in the future sermons because the prophecies talk about that. But, okay, so that's the second horseman. He brings peace. I mean, he brings disruption to the peace. The third horse speaks of the consequences of this civil unrest. What happens when you have civil war and conflict? Inflation. Prices go up. Look at what it says. Shortages, inflated prices on food. Look at verse 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales to, to weigh things out. Like That's how they would sell things, right? It's like a cash register. You know, you put the gold on the one side and the product on the other side that you're selling and weigh it out. Um, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures. Ah, there's a... Here's an authority. This is the Lord's decree. He decreed that at this time, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. That's a very high price for a quart of wheat. Do you remember how much a denarius is in the Bible? A denarius is a day's wage for a working man. So, $120 $120 or so in our money, something like that, uh, for one liter or one quart of wheat or three of barley, which was cheaper. So in other words, you'd be spending most of your money just to get food on your table. At this point, though, in the, in the equation, the rich still have their luxuries. The oil and the wine, you can get a pretty good price. Because why? Everybody's spending their money trying to get the, the necessities. The poor people, the, just the normal people, are getting their necessities. They're trying to buy the wheat and spend all their money on that. So there's plenty of oil and wine. So the rich people are still doing okay at this juncture. Now, they won't be forever, but, but they are. Um, know that these very details are ordered by the Lord. He is the one who brings all of this about for the advancement of his kingdom. Like, you know, if, if food prices rise, he decreed it. He decreed how much a jug of milk is going to cost in Nova Scotia today. That's his work. How much a, a, a liter of gas is going to cost. Now, we need to realize that he is sovereign. Now, this unrest then must come for rejecting him as Savior. It will humble some and it will harden others. They'll shake their fist at God. Others will be humbled and they'll say, we must be doing something wrong. And they'll begin to see. Look for that. As you see disruptions in our society, you're going to see people that are humble and they're asking questions like, what do we need to do? And others are saying, arr, arr, why are we having all this trouble? I don't believe in God. Why does he do that? You know, that, that kind of thing. How do you respond? How do you respond to these kind of things? They're from God. They're all from God for his purposes and his kingdom. They're all from Christ. The fourth horse in verses 7 and 8 
brings death. That's a consequence of the other horses. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed him. Hades refers to the grave, death and the grave. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword. So there was a limitation with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So when the Jewish wars with their Roman rulers began to, uh, the Jews with the Romans went, went to war in the Jewish wars at that time, there were many, especially in Israel, who died, including among them. As I say, the Romans were battling with each other. They were killing each other. Included among them were also Christian believers. Christians died under the Roman persecutions as well who were persecuted by the Jews and the Romans. Many of them were killed. We know about, for instance, even early on, we know about Stephen and James, who were executed by the Jews, along with many others. When Nero was emperor, he at first didn't disturb the Christians. But then later on, he blamed them for the, the fires in Rome, and he began one of the worst, if not, some say, the very worst persecution that ever went on in the Roman Empire. Paul and Peter for example, were executed by him, and many, many others were burned and tortured and all sorts of terrible things happened. Now, does it seem strange to you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah, to take his place to rule and begin to unleash these horsemen that come and bring these kind of things upon the earth? Does that seem like that shouldn't? Maybe it does. We need this material because it tells us what our Lord does. It tells us that this is his plan. It's not like things went wrong and the Lord said, oh, well, I was hoping the gospel would, oh, what am I going to do? No, he's poised. He's there. He's sending this forth to bring about his purpose. He knows what he's doing. And you see, People want to deny that. They don't want Jesus to be like that. They have an idol Jesus that they want. The Jesus that we is the Son of God that died on the cross is the one who sends forth these things. So here he is. It's clear from our text that um, they bring destruction not only to the enemies of God, but to the very people of God. He decreed that Christians would be persecuted at this time. I show you this. Those who receive the gospel are persecuted and cry out for vengeance. That's our second main point. This is shown in the fifth seal when it is open. Look at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Why were they killed? For, for believing in Jesus. For living for God. That's why they were killed. That's what it says. Where were they? They were under the altar. These are those who, as Paul expressed, were absent from the body. He saw their souls. He didn't see their bodies. They were under the altar. They were absent from the body and present with the Lord. When Paul was facing martyrdom, he said that this state of affairs would be far better for him than going about on the earth where he was abused and beaten and all these kind of things. It would be better for me to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Now, it's hard to know what these souls look like. 
I'm telling you again, this isn't something that you can expect to go and see somewhere. This isn't something that's visual. Souls don't have a material substance. But it's showing us that they were where? Under the altar of God. They were where? They were with Jesus Christ. He's by the altar. They're with the Lord, where Paul said they would be. They have communion with the Lord in their death. Okay, that's what's being shown. He sees these souls under the altar, thus near Jesus, under the altar on which he offered his sacrifice in heaven that takes away our sins. There they are. The reason they were killed again clearly stated they were slain for the word of God, for believing what God had revealed through his prophets and apostles, especially about Jesus Christ, the living word, and his gospel. These believers had done no wrong to their persecutors. They were simply executed for professing Jesus Christ, his lordship, and salvation by his cross. So the Romans persecuted them, on the other hand, or the Romans, on the one hand, persecuted them for refusing to acknowledge Caesar as lord. They had the thing at that time where you have to offer a pinch of incense to Caesar. That's all you had to do and you were okay. The Christians said, we're not going to do that. Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar. And uh, so they persecuted them for that. Why did the Jews do it? For confessing that salvation was by a crucified Messiah? The Jews said the Messiah is not going to be crucified. They were offended at the cross. Like, we don't need a crucified Messiah. The Messiah lives forever, they, they would say. The ones that rejected him. So they, they persecuted them for that. It offended them. Now see how these martyrs cry out for vengeance. Verse 10. And they, these martyrs, cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? When are you going to deal with the people that, that killed us, that tortured and killed us? There is no evil in this cry. Okay? People look at that in our feminine day and they say, oh, they shouldn't have done that. These people are reigning with Christ in glory. They have been perfected. They have no more sin. And they're saying, Lord, when are you going to judge our enemies? We need to understand what the Bible teaches, not what our sentiments of our society would tell us. They're grieved that they were slain and that the honor of Jesus Christ was brought down and that those on earth of their number are continuing to suffer. How long can the mighty Lord stand by without addressing this, without dealing with this thing? How long will he allow it to continue? They're praying what he told them to pray. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come doesn't just mean that people will come in the way that it talks about as willing volunteers. It also means that Satan and all of those who are in league with him will be destroyed. Both of those things are meant. Vengeance belongs to me, says the Lord. They're praying for his kingdom would advance by bringing vengeance on his and their enemies. Later on, when vengeance is brought, later on in Revelation, when vengeance is brought on Israel, they will fill heaven with hallelujahs. Hallelujah. The Lord God reigns. His enemies have been brought down. If their enemies were to repent, okay, they would be delighted with that. But if not, they do not wish to see them continue in peace. They wish to see them brought to ruin. They wish to see them brought to justice and stop. For they cannot go on actively opposing Christ and his kingdom out of bitter hatred forever and ever. 
they must be stopped. The Lord's response to their cry is marvelous. First, He gives them each a white robe. <laughs> Verse 11, he, he gives them a white robe. This is probably a robe of victory, also possibly of purity. Um, we're not told specifically here. Perhaps you remember, though, him promising a robe of a white robe to those who overcame in the letters to the seven churches. Well, here it is, those that died for him. Secondly, he tells them to rest a little while until the remainder of their brethren who are to be killed was completed. What a majestic response that is. Do you see that? Our, our Lord is not in the least frazzled here because he is carrying out his plan doing all that is required for the glorious establishment of his kingdom. We know that he is extremely compassionate because he came here in his own body, bore our sins in order that we might be pardoned. He knows what we need, though, to be made complete. This, there was suffering to be borne by his servants in this world for his honor and for the exposure of the malice of his enemies that were to be judged, that he might be justified when he judged them. We see the extreme wickedness that is in men when they rise up against those who are following Christ for no other reason than but they are following, that they are following Christ. They can't tolerate a merciful Son of God who saves sinners because they don't want people to be reconciled to God because of the, the hatred that they have for God. This is why the wicked are judged severely and why there is prayer that they would be judged by these holy martyrs in glory. How could this be opposed by them? A Savior reconciling people to God. But that is what is in the heart of every human being until we are either converted or we're brought down to uh, judgment in the pit of hell. It is only because of the malice that we have toward God apart from His grace and mercy. But His judgment is coming upon their adversaries sooner than they might think. The sixth seal. Look at that one. With the sixth seal, we see the shaking of the established order, established government. That's what happens. Okay, a nation can, leaders can persecute Christians for generations for many years but the day will come when God's hand will fall upon that nation their leaders and they will be brought down and so that time had come for Israel who had persecuted the prophets so long Jesus said the time had come with the sixth seal we see the shaking of the established government the well-known language this is this is the well-known language of the prophets for shaking the kingdoms it's employed here to describe the blows that the Lamb brings on both Israel and their Roman rulers. Look at verse 12 to 14. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Now the language here is confusing to modern readers if we don't know the Old Testament. All sorts of zany ideas are concocted about how this is going to come about. 
It helps a lot to remember that John is seeing things depicted by signs and symbols. I keep reminding you of that. Okay, this isn't visual things that everyone looks at and says, oh, this, this is things in a vision to depict things that cannot be seen. Okay, of not literal events of stars falling from the sky any more than Jesus holding literal stars in his hands. We were told about those that they symbolize the messengers of the churches. So what do these strange depictions refer to of skies being rolled up and stars falling and all these kind of things? The best way to know that is by looking to see what they have always referred to in Scripture when used with reference to God's judgment on the nations. They refer to the overthrow of established government established order moon and stars represent leadership over a nation and the disruption of that leadership is shown by the disruption of those the sun and moon and stars and such we we encounter this language all the way back in genesis with joseph you remember when joseph had a dream what did he see the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down to me. And they knew immediately what he was talking about. The father, the son, my mother, the moon, and my 11 brothers bowing down to me. And they got very angry. Who do you think you are? And of course, that's exactly what happened when Moses became a lord in Egypt. And they went and they all bowed down before Joseph. Rulers, leaders, sun, moon, stars. Now, that's the first encounter we have that. But invariably, the prophets that came later, those that were in the office of prophet, uh, they use it to refer to the downfall of established rulers and leaders. Stars falling, sun darkened, moon turned to blood, disruptions in the sky. Though many examples could be given, I'll give you one. Besides the ones I've already given. Isaiah 34. Here the Lord speaks about the judgments that He is bringing to many nations, including Israel, by the Assyrian Empire. Okay? Something that happened while Isaiah was still alive. Isaiah did long-term prophecies. He also did prophecies that were fulfilled in his generation. You remember when the Assyrians came and they surrounded Jerusalem? Isaiah was alive. King Hezekiah was there and all the armies were gathered around. And they had the, the uh, famine because of, or, or they had the... Um, the, the siege and everything. And uh, so look, look, at, look at what it says. Isaiah 34, the Lord speaks about the judgments that he is bringing to many nations, including Israel, by the Assyrians. And he says, Isaiah 34, verse 2, For the indignation or the anger of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also their slain shall be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. Now, is that to be taken literally, that the mountains melted when, because of blood that was shed of these? No. This is language to depict the horror of the bloodshed that God was going to bring on these nations that he's judging. It says, verse 4, all the host of heaven, that's the stars, the moon, the sun, all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, 
and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falls from the vine and as the fruit falling from a fig tree. Sounds so much like what we read in Revelation, doesn't it? So are we supposed to expect the sky is going to be rolled up like a scroll? No. It's saying that the whole order of all these nations, their kingdoms, their kings, their rulers, their people, it's all going to be in an upheaval. So what happened in Israel? They came in. What happened? The first thing they did, they took away Daniel and uh, leaders that were among them. And they hauled them off. This is when they went to Babylon. They hauled them off to Babylon. And there was a disruption. The leaders were all, they changed the king. They moved this king, made that one king, did all these things. And they took that one down and put another one up. Everything was all in an upheaval, the, the order of the society. Revelation claims to be a book of visions representing things so we should expect what not literal things that we'll see with our eyes like that but visions of things representing things if the symbols or disturbances in the heavens were used consistently in the old testament i could give you other examples to describe the overthrow of kingdoms and governments we should expect them to be used the same way in revelation which is decidedly a book of visions so interestingly this kind of language is used by joel and his prophecy that Peter says was fulfilled at Pentecost. A lot of people say, well, how was that fulfilled at Pentecost when it says the moon turned to blood and all this sort of stuff? He said it was fulfilled when? When the Holy Spirit was poured out. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy and so on. Acts 2.19. There was what? A new authority here that unnerved them and made them terribly afraid. The Holy Spirit came and He brought an authority into the lives of those who received the Holy Spirit that the rulers and leaders could not contend with. It disrupted their rule and their authority. The sun was darkened and the moon turned to blood and did not give its light. You see that they were no longer receiving that light. There was a new authority and it unnerved and disrupted the whole society and the leaders. The existing order was being overthrown by God. Great fear came upon all the people. In our text, we see the terror of everyone from the kings to the slaves. Look at 6.15, Revelation 6.15. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, but not just them, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. Now, the strong language is used because it's saying everybody was terrified. They were afraid. They were afraid more than they would have been afraid of the armies themselves. Yes, sometimes literal armies were used to come and invade them, but they were more afraid of the one they saw behind those armies than they were of the armies. They realized that God was coming against them for what they had done. They recognized that the Lord was overthrowing their ungodly regime. Remember the people that did become willing in the day of power at Pentecost? What did they say? Men and brethren, what shall we do? They they feared God. There's an authority here. We have rejected the authority of our God. And they were brought to repentance. So they recognized the Lord and they... They recognize that the Lord is overthrowing their ungodly regime and they fear him and his face. Look at verse 16 and 17. And they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. From who? From who? From these armies that are coming and invading? 
No. From the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come and who is able to stand? In Matthew 26, 64, Jesus told the chief priests and the elders who were sentencing Him to be crucified that He was the Son of God. They asked if He was and He said that He was. And then He added, and this is what I told you in the introduction time, I say to you, hereafter you shall see you will see, you who crucif are crucifying me, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You will see that I am reigning with divine power and bringing judgment against you. They knew that he was saying that they would see that he, Jesus, was judging them, that he would show his authority upon them. We read a similar thing in Matthew 24. We read a similar thing. And also in Mark 13, in the parallel passage, I'd like to read them one from Mark 13, verse 24 to 27. It says, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. He's going to go out in the world and gather in his elect. The point here is that Jesus is reigning and that the establishment of his reign involves not only the gathering of his elect into his kingdom, it also involves the overthrow of all those who oppose him. And initially, it involved vengeance that he brought on Jerusalem and Judea because they did not recognize his day the day of His visitation, the day of God's visitation, the day that God brought the Messiah to save them. Did Jesus not tell them in Matthew 23, 34 through 36 that He would judge them? Matthew 23, 34, He, says, he said in that generation that the judgment was going to fall on their nation. I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Okay, who are some of the prophets, wise men, and scribes? Apostle Paul. Peter, James, and John, um, uh, Luke, um, you know, some of, them you will, some of them you will kill and crucify, some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you, on this generation, on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, all the way back to Abel, the first martyr, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who is the last one that is listed in the uh, canon of Scripture to be executed, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, okay, he doesn't say maybe, he says, assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon whom? A future generation, way, way off in the distance. No, this generation, the generation that he was in, it was some 30 years later or so that these things began to unleash. Revelation shows his judgment against them that brings an end to their city and their temple, that the Jerusalem and the temple that is above might be opened, where Jesus is seated at God's right hand and where the nations flow up to his salvation. With the opening of these seals, the day of wrath has come against those who rejected the Messiah but the gospel has also been unleashed into the earth. It, the gospel does both of those things. 
And they recognized that it was his wrath. The wicked don't always admit that. But they recognize God can make it clear, this is my hand coming upon you. That's what we saw here in, the, in Revelation, that they hid themselves from the Lord, knowing from his face. I encourage then all of you to kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you and you perish. Come to him and he will save you and, and be precious to you. Resist him and you will regret it for all eternity. Jesus will reign until all of his enemies are brought under his feet one way or another. Please stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that you are the Lord of lords and the King of kings and that you have been exalted as mediator. You're always is the Son of God in that place, but as mediator, the one who came and was born here in our flesh, you have been exalted to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high until all of your enemies are made your footstool. And we praise you, O Lord, that you have made us to be your people, O Lord. You have made us to be willing volunteers in the day of your power, to be those who come and offer ourselves to you as volunteers and servants of our God, just as you offered yourself to the Father when you came here in our flesh. We pray, O Lord, that we would gladly give ourselves to you, for you are worthy of all honor and glory and power and dominion, for you are the one who uh, redeemed us by your blood. You are the lamb that was slain for our sins. You have accomplished redemption that you may purchase a people to yourself. All those that the Father has given you will come to you. We praise you that you will also bring down your adversaries, that they will not continue in the world, that they will be destruction and they will be brought into the pit. We pray, O Lord, that you would hasten your kingdom, that you would continue your work. We pray that we would be patient as the uh, martyrs that were under the altar were, were told to wait until the until the day came. But we see that it came very quickly, that those who had tormented them, that judgment was to fall very soon in that very generation upon Israel. And they recognized that. And they were ready for that day to come. And we pray, Lord, that, that we might be those who, who desire to see your honor and glory above all other things. We do cry out to you for those who are in rebellion against you. Lord, we would love more than anything to see them repent and call upon your name. But Father, we commit this to you, and we know that you will do what is right, that our Lord Jesus will do what is right, for he carries out your will in all things as our mediator. We praise you that he is riding forth to victory, to conquer, conquering and to conquer, and he will not fail. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now the blessing of him as the exalted Lord King of kings, master of all. And now may your righteousness go forth as brightness and your salvation as the lamp that burns. May the nations see your righteousness and all kings your glory. May you be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with everyone. Amen.